This morning's passage comes from Revelation chapter 21, verses 9 through 27. And I would encourage you this morning to have your Bibles in front of you and open, because there's a lot to get through. And if you are willing and able for you to stand for the reading of God's word. Revelation chapter 21, verses 9 through 27. Revelation 21, 9 through 27. This is God's word. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls of the, la- of the full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and the gates and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies foursquare, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter into in, will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. One of the things you hear people say is that all religions are basically the same. Now, on a superficial level, we would say, yes, they're kind of similar. They have sacred books, kind of sacred rites. And they all kind of tell people, hey, live a good life, a moral, upright life. 
But when you get into it, there is a vast and fundamental difference in world religions and systems of thought. When you talk about worldview, there are essentially four questions that people ask. One, how did things start? Two, what's our problem? Three, what's our solution? And four, how are things going to end? With just these four questions, you get very, very different answers. Did things start by accident? Or by gods? Or a god? What's our problem? Is it just that we're disconnected with nature? Is it just that we have too many desires? Or is it sin? And what's our solution? Is it enlightenment? Is it hard work? Is it faith in a person? And how do things end? In Hinduism, the goal, the end goal is moksha, which is the release from samsara, the cycle of reincarnation. Everyone's basically trapped in a cycle. And the goal is to get out of it by doing your duty and receiving good karma. So for Hindus, if you have moksha, it will mean you will go and live in the next life with gods and other goddesses. Uh, for some of you, it will mean that you're detached from the world in an internal aloneness. And while still others, you will simply cease to exist and become one with Brahman. For Islam, his heaven is where you worship God. And according to Surah 65 in the Quran, uh, you recline on couches and enjoy immortal youths and high bosom maidens and virgins. Or there's Mormonism where after death you keep learning and growing to reach a state of perfection. And you can either end up in the telestial kingdom or the terrestrial kingdom or the best, which is the celestial kingdom. If you get there, you live forever in God's presence and you live as a God with your wife procreating for an eternity. Then there's Christianity. Now, there is some overlap if you were to look at these things superficially. But the differences far outweigh the overlap. This is what is so remarkable in the last few chapters of the book of Revelation. In, these, in chapter 21 and 22, in the discussion of heaven, what's so remarkable is that there isn't a lot of detail about heaven itself. You're actually not given much about what you're going to do in heaven compared to other world religions. We know we'll be singing. We know we'll be worshiping. We know from Jesus' teaching that there will be no more marriage. But everything else is kind of left to conjecture. We're wondering, okay, like, are we going to have pets there? And so we start speculating about pets or the homes that Jesus says he's going to prepare for us. Or we talk about the hobbies we're going to enjoy in heaven. Like, we don't know. It doesn't say which people will be around. And honestly, we aren't given as much as we like. In fact, we don't even know what heaven will look like. Now you might say, well, Steve, you just wrote, you just read through Revelation and it's like all these jewels and gold and all these things like that. Isn't it just, isn't that what heaven looks like? Yes, but the description we read of this new Jerusalem is actually full of symbol-laden imagery. 
we are not meant to understand what we just read in Revelation 21, literally. The Apostle John, when he sees the New Jerusalem, describes it with the limitations of human language. So he uses all sorts of simile and metaphor and symbols to illustrate and explain what human words cannot. Because let's be honest, the, the heaven described isn't very beautiful. I mean, it's, it's a cube. It's shaped as a cube. And there's jewels everywhere, and it's overladen with gold, and for me, that's just gaudy. I mean, it might be a rapper's paradise, but it wouldn't be my paradise. No, rather, these are word pictures that you're not supposed to paint, like earlier descriptions in, G in Revelation where Jesus is seen as a warrior and as a lamb, and he's riding a horse, and there's a sword coming out of his mouth. We aren't meant to take these descriptions literally. It's imagery conveying a reality. Now, one of the things we do learn is certainly that it's a place. Heaven is a place. There is a new heaven and new earth. That's why it talks about streets and gates and places and walls and all sorts of things and gardens. But for the most part, our passage this morning tells us not about heaven so much as a place, but a people. It's a little confusing because look down there in verse 9. It says, come, what does the angel say? I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb, which is, we understand it to be, the church. But right when he starts describing the bride, what is it? It becomes a city. He describes a city. So the description is not so much of the city we will live in, but a description of what we will look like. It is a, a reflection of us. It is a way of describing what we have become. It is a reflection of our future selves. And so the main idea here in this passage this morning, if you're taking notes or if you want to go home and tell your mom and dad, and when they ask you, what was the main idea of the sermon? You can say this. It is this, that the church will be glorious. The church will be glorious. And the passage provides three reasons why the church will be glorious. Three reasons why the church will be glorious. First, it will reflect God's perfection. It will reflect God's perfection. Look at verses 9 through 11 again with me. Listen. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and spoke to me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Now, when you read these verses, for some of us with great memories, it might be like it's a rerun. I'm like, wait a minute, this sounds familiar, because it has. It, this has happened to John before, earlier in Revelation. So you're going to need your Bibles, turn back to Revelation 17, and you'll see some striking parallels. Revelation chapter 17, look at verse 1. Just a few chapters back, Revelation 17. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the great prostitute. Then, verse 3, and he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations. What we see in 
chapter 17 is actually a description of Babylon. We find out later that this description of this woman, this prostitute, is Babylon. It is a description of worldliness, this world that is passing away. And when you get to the end of that passage about Babylon and this prostitute that is seen, that John sees, John falls down before the angel and wants to worship this angel and is rebuked. Now, turn back to Revelation 21. We have the same thing, don't we? John is shown, this angel comes, one of the angels of the seven bowls, and, and, and he's shown a woman, but this time it's a bride. And when this vision ends, you look at chapter 22, verse 8, John wants to fall down and worship this angel again and once again gets rebuked. Now, what's going on? You see, John is, the apostle John who wrote Revelation is making a comparison. One commentator goes so far as to say, Revelation is a tale of two cities, the harlot and the bride. It is the difference between the city of man and the city of God. It is the Difference between one which is earthly and one which comes down from heaven. One is a prostitute, another is a bride. One offering gold and riches, one made of gold and riches. One burned and desolate, the other eternal and full of life. And so Revelation asks us to choose our allegiance. To which city will we belong? If you are cowardly and faithless, if you continue to live your own way in the way that you want to live, if you are going to pursue what Babylon has to offer, what this world has to offer, if you're attracted to those jewels, you will not enter the gates of the new Jerusalem. But if you are willing to conquer as we read earlier in Revelation, if you're willing to overcome, if you're willing to endure persecution for the sake of Christ, if you will throw it all away for Jesus, gold is what you're going to be walking on. You will participate in the joys and the glory of the new Jerusalem. So Christian, this is meant to be an encouragement for you to press on because everything that is glittering in this world is not gold. True riches are ahead. And the city of God, the church, will gloriously reflect God's perfection. Now look at verse 11. The glory of God, right? In verse 11, it has the glory of God. It's radiance like a most rare jewel. This is talking about the church, like a jasper. Now, the church is going to radiate. It's going to be like a jasper. And what does that mean? And you think, jasper? Like it's, Some people will, basically, some people consider it possibly to be the translation as a diamond. But now you think, Jasper, I think I've kind of heard that before. Well, earlier in Revelation chapter 4, what happens? John is taken into the throne room of God. He's taken up into heaven, and he looks into the throne room, and he sees one seated on the throne in Revelation chapter 4. And what does he say? He who sat there had the appearance of Jasper. 
And so this picture of God radiating like Jasper is now what the church is going to look like. The church will reflect the magnificence and the beauty and the perfections of the Almighty. The church will be so full of God's glory that we will emanate the same uh, to a different degree, but a like kind of glory. Perfect glory will radiate and diffuse from us. That is what God is doing to the church. It's like Moses, when he went to Mount Sinai and he was in the presence of the Lord and he came down and his face was aglow, and they were like, put a veil on for that thing because it's a glow. Or, or, or if you're a kid, if, you know, uh, or if you're, you, know, you love your glow-in-the-dark toys, don't you? You love those glow-in-the-dark toys and you have to take that glow-in-the-dark toy and what do you have to do? You have to put it right next to the light bulb in your living room. Because then it kind of charges, so to speak. And then you, you take it out and then you turn off all the lights and it glows and it shines and it radiates, reflecting that light. That's what happens to the church. So full of God's glory, unhindered to God's presence that his glory stains our faces. We will become finally that city that is on a hill. Now skip down to verse 23 and we see that we're not the source of that light. It says the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb. Even in, in heaven, the father and son continually have this joyful coexistence, this complementary roles, father and son, the father, the source of the light, the lamp, the lamb, the, the means by which the lamp and light of the glory is displayed. And so it's remarkable in verse 23, it says that the city does not need the sun to govern anymore or, or stars or moon. Now, is it literal that in the new heaven and the new earth, there'll be no sun, no moon? Maybe. But the whole idea is that you don't need it anymore. The sun is to govern the day and moon and the stars. That's gone. I mean, can you imagine the sun just being gone? You know, I'm standing up here and it's hot. It really is. And I'm squinting because it's so bright and I've, bathe myself in sunscreen because I don't want to burn. But the sun is nothing compared to the glory of God shining in the new Jerusalem. And you won't need the sun anymore. Here's a picture of the church perfectly reflecting the glory of God. Now, Revelation has been a book that has been very realistic and also presents a very exalted view of the church. Realistic and that you read chapters 2 and 3 and you realize those seven churches of Asia Minor, they had some problems, didn't they? they? They did some good things. They worked hard. They had their doctrine right. They remained faithful. And yet, at the same time, they were cold and some of them were undiscerning. Some churches made Jesus want to puke. And you get a pretty authentic picture of what the church is like. And our church, Redeemer, is no different. I could list 50 things we do well, 50 things that we do very well, and I could list another 50 that we need to work on. How can we be united together as a church without demanding uniformity? How do we serve a whole other congregation that speaks a different language to us than us? What do we do about cliques? What do we do that singles feel awkward hanging out with 
families. You know, some people think we are too theologically liberal. Really, they do. And while others think that if we get any more tight theologically, we're going to strangle ourselves. How come small groups don't meet my my needs? How come the preaching is just so-so? Then there's missions, evangelism, we want to build a new building. Prayer meeting is sparsely attended on Sundays. And I haven't even mentioned our fears, our insecurities on all the ways that we've sinned just coming here this morning. That's the church. That's who we are. But it's not what awaits us. John Piper writes that the church is in the process of progressive glorification. Paul puts it this way, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. In other words, church, redeemer, you will be glorious. You will reflect God's perfection. So hold on. Don't be enamored to become more like the world, but overcome. Stay faithful. Second, and I get to pick up the pace a little bit here. Second, the church will be glorious not only because it will reflect God's perfection, but the church will be glorious because it will be under God's protection. It will be under God's protection. You notice in verses 12 through 14 that we are given a description of the city's walls and gates and foundations. Now, why does a city have walls? Well, in ancient times, walls were meant for security. There were no planes and no drones, which you could have a drone strike and shoot a missile at something from up above. So walls kept a city safe and secure. That's why the book of Nehemiah is all about building a wall. I mean, that's why Donald Trump wanted to build a wall. The purpose is protection. And these great walls in the New Jerusalem are the breadth and length and height and depth of God's love for us. The walls are the measure of God's protection and keeping us secure. Now, there are no enemies in the new heaven and the new earth. They've all been dealt with in the lake of fire. But it's a picture of the eternal security of the church. Invincible, kept safe. And gates are are all around the city, you notice. But you notice in verse 25 that the gates will what? Never be shut. Instead, there are angels above them. Welcoming angels. Not angels with swords like at the Garden of Eden, barring the way of entry. But angels welcoming the people of God. Imagine that. There is no need to close the door. It is a place of absolute security and there is no darkness. Think of all the distrust and danger that we have in this world. Think of, think of it as we see it in our locks or motion sensors that we own or the surveillance cameras that we install. It's evident in our really, really long passwords. You have to have really long, strong passwords these days. It's evident from the little digits that we have on the back of our credit cards. 
It's why it takes four hours to get onto a plane. Why? Because there are enemies. There are, there's opposition. There are people untrustworthy. And yet, no matter how much safety we try to procure for ourselves, no matter how much social distancing, no matter how many airbags you have in your car, no matter how many guns you may own, or N95 masks that you might have, or social security, or your constant exercise, in this world, there will always be vulnerability. We will always be vulnerable. There is a deep drive for safety in our hearts. Isn't that what the, this year has taught us? The slogan has been, stay, what? Safe. Safe? That's an illusion. James 4.13, come now you who say today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. And what does it say? Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? It appears for a little time and it vanishes. Rather, we should say, if the Lord wills. Safe. No safety. In fact, for the Christian, the Bible promises what? It promises peril, doesn't it? All who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. God says to you, Christian, your citizenship is secure. Secure. And it is not here in this world, but it is in the world to come. And so, you will be scorned when you don't participate in Pride Month. You will be shamed for even considering being a stay-at-home mom. You'll be shouted down for speaking up about Jesus. And you'll miss out on all the promotions, all the acceptance, all the fun, and everything that Babylon is offering you. But if you overcome, if you will not cower, safety is yours forever. Forever. Church, we are, we are near every day. Every day we are near to our home country. So let's not let safety tempt us to stay put. Or let luxury lure us or comfort to keep us. We can embrace risk for the sake of Christ and his glory because our final refuge, our final fortress is in the age to come. Third and last, the church will be glorious because it will be in God's presence. The church will be glorious because it will reflect God's perfection be under God's protection, and third, because it is in God's presence. That's why it will be glorious. The whole of God's people will be holy with God. Now, for us to understand this, we need a bit of time to understand the symbols of the passage. So hopefully you can have your Bibles in front of you and can, we're going to kind of go pretty quickly through this. But first, you notice in the passage, what? The number, what? Twelve. A lot. And the number is symbolic of the fullness of God's people. Now, you look in verse 12, it says there are twelve gates. And as and inscribed are the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. In verse 14, there are twelve foundations, and those are the twelve names of the twelve apostles. In other words, this is speaking about what? The totality of God's people in both covenants. Israel and the church. 
Israel and the church. It's the totality of them. That's why 12s are just flying all over our passage. It's, it's, there's 12 gates, and there's 12 stones, and there's 12 foundations, and there's 12,000 stadia uh, as the length of the city. And if you look at the whole vision from verse 9 all the way to chapter 22, verse 5, you're going to be able to count 12 12s. Especially if you, well, AI actually only works if you take the 144 and do 12 times 12. But still, I still think it's maybe there. But again, we, we see this kind of symbolism earlier in chapter 7 where there was 144,000 of Israel, right? 12,000 from every tribe. What's it saying? Is it the exact number of people? No, it's not literal. It's saying the complete number that God has chosen in Israel will be there in the final days. So this is speaking of the totality of God's people. But they're not only a bunch of 12s, there are a bunch of stones, aren't there? Now, these 12 stones, there's a little bit of debate regarding them, but in Exodus 28, when, when Moses is giving the law, he talks about the high priest and what he wears. And he kind of has this whole get up with a turban and a white you know, robe, and he has this blue ephod, but one of the things that he has is this breastplate of 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. The idea is that the tribes of Israel were on the high priest's heart, and as their representative, this high priest, this mediator, he would go into the holies once, holy of holies once a year, bearing that breastplate upon his heart before the Lord in the Day of Atonement. And it seems that the same jewels on the high priest are the jewels that are mentioned here in Revelation in the New Jerusalem. It's kind of crazy. I mean, I think there might be some translation issues, but basically that's what's going on. I think that's the emphasis here, is the priestly nature of the church. That all God's people now, like the priest of Israel, could go into the temple and stand before the Almighty. But there's one more thing to notice, and it's that there's no temple. And you might be thinking, what? No temple? Well, the temple was the most important building in the ancient city, and for Jerusalem, the temple was a center of Israelite life. Why? Because the, the temple was the place in which God dwelt. That was the place in which God dwelt his presence, though everywhere, was uniquely there for the time of Israel. That's why there was a pillar of cloud on top when God was dwelling with them at the temple and the tabernacle. So the tabernacle of Leviticus and Solomon's temple in 1 Kings was about fellowship with God. It was, it's about how sinful man can finally dwell in the presence of a holy God. That's what it's been all about. And so when you entered into the courtyard of the temple, you would find there a, a bronze altar by which you had to make sacrifices. And what's that a picture of? That without the shedding of blood, there is no salvation. There is no drawing near to God. And then, only the priests were allowed into the holy place, which is kind of like passed into the temple, past the courtyard, because they've been washed clean. And they can go there, and when they go inside, this place is full of incense. Why? Because you cannot dwell, you cannot see God and not be and live. But beyond, once you get into the temple, beyond that holy place, there is this door and this holy of holies. And only the high priest could walk inside once a year. 
for the nation of Israel so that he can, he can be their mediator. But in the New Jerusalem, there is no temple. And so what's going on? Because the city itself is the temple. God's dwelling place is everywhere. It's all temple. And get this. The picture gets crazier. The dimensions of the New Jerusalem, it's 12,000 stadia per side, which is about 1,400 miles. And so you're, it's pretty long. It's like here to like Chicago about as the birds fly, right? So it's a pretty big city but notice not the size but its dimensions length width height all the same it's a cube (laughs) it's a cube and for a tabernacle nerd like me that's amazing because when Solomon built the temple in first Kings 6 what was the size of the holy of holies it was 20 cubits long 20 cubits wide and 20 cubits high. A cube. So what is all this saying? It's saying you are in the presence of the Holy of Holies and you are the Holy of Holies. It's saying that the church is glorious because every single one who has trusted in the gospel, everyone who is written in the Lamb's book of life, everyone who has repented of their sins, everyone who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ, And in his death and in his resurrection will be in the perfect presence of our holy God forever and ever. God no longer merely dwells with his people. He becomes the very atmosphere. He permeates the place of heaven. The people of heaven. Can you imagine what that will be like? The blessedness of the beauty of heaven will be incessantly expansive you will it will intensify with every passing moment you'll be happier tomorrow than you were today for an eternity because you will be for the presence of an eternal god so you're not just going to get there and be like "Ooh, this is awesome i'm so excited and then the next day be like ah you know i'm kind of backsliding right no there's none of that you're not going to be bored the next day It's not going to be like how my wife uh, treats her diamond ring. You know, like when she first got it, she was like, ooh, this is awesome. It's kind of sparkly. It's like made out of like precious stones. And then she gets a little cleaner for it and, you know, brushes it, uses a toothbrush, makes it clean. And nowadays, well, it's kind of everywhere. And, you know, sometimes it's on on the sink. It's sometimes on the nightstand. It's on the kitchen counter. It's in a drawer. But that's not what it's going to be like in heaven. You experience, your experience in heaven will never cool. Your desire for God will never fade. Sam Storms writes, we will constantly be more amazed with God, more in love with God, and thus ever more relishing his presence and our relationship with him. Our experience of God will never become stale. It will deepen and develop, intensify and amplify, unfold and increase, broaden and balloon. Our relishing and rejoicing in God will sharpen and spread, stretch and swell and snowball and reach a crescendo that will even then be only the beginning of an eternity of new and fresh insights into the majesty of who God is. Ultimately, this is why the church is glorious. Because God 
God. The church will reflect His glory. The church will be under His protection. And the church will be glorious because we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever on all our days. And we will gaze upon the beauty of our Lord. So church, press on. Don't quit. Because Babylon is brief. Its pleasures are passing. And its affliction, but momentary. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for this brief glimpse of heaven. We are astounded that there is not so much that we read about that we're, what we're going to be doing as much as who, what you are doing to the church, making her beautiful. And we are looking forward to the day, Lord, when we'll be finally home in your presence forever, increasing with joy. We pray for those who are here today who have no taste for heaven, who have heard everything about this, about being in the presence of Jesus as boring, as nothing bland, tasteless. Oh God, give them taste buds that they may see that Jesus is sweeter than honey, better than gold or fine gold. Open their eyes that they may draw near to you today, that they can be sure that their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.